Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Ames Tribune for this Thursday, May 7th, 2020. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and you are listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. And here is our first story. Story County cases increased by 12. New total sits at 52. This story is written by Kylie Wellendorf, a staff writer for the Tribune. Story County saw a rise of 12 positive COVID-19 cases on Thursday, bringing the county's new total to 52, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health, or IDPH. The increase comes one day after Governor Kim Reynolds issued a new proclamation lifting restrictions for businesses statewide. The governor's proclamation announced early on Wednesday evening authorized Iowa dentist offices, campgrounds, tanning salons, and drive-in movie theaters. It also allowed some businesses to open their doors in 22 counties, not including in last week's partial reopening. The majority of the 12 cases confirmed in Story County were tested through McFarland Clinic, through though the exact number was not immediately known, and at least one case through Story County Medical Clinic in Nevada, according to Stephen Sullivan, spokesperson for Mary Greeley Medical. All others were tested at sites outside of Story County, Sullivan said. Of Story County's 52 cases, 41% occurred in individuals between the ages of 18 and 40, and 37% in individuals aged 41 to 60 years of age. Uh, according to information from the IDPH. Additionally, COVID-19 has affected males slightly more than females in Story County at 51%. Governor Kim Reynolds did not provide an update on cases during Thursday's daily press conference. However, according to the state's coronavirus website, Iowa has a new total of 11,059 positive cases an increase of 655 new cases from Wednesday's statistics as of Thursday morning. During Reynolds' press conference on Thursday, the governor discussed her decision to authorize some Iowa businesses in the 22 counties where COVID-19 infection rates have been higher uh, to go ahead and reopen on Friday. As we have seen this week, business owners will decide whether the time is right to reopen their doors just as Iowans choose whether or not they will resume some of their normal activities, the governor said. The announcement followed last week's order, which allowed some retail businesses, including restaurants, to open at 50% capacity in 77 of Iowa's 99 counties, including Story and Boone counties. Schools remain closed, as do businesses such as hair salons and barber shops. Restaurants and other businesses in 77 counties, including Story and Boone, have reopened with limitations, while the current carryout and delivery-only rules apply in the other 22 counties. A White House employee has tested positive for coronavirus. President Trump and Vice President Pence have tested negative. This story written by David Jackson of USA Today. A member of the military who works at the White House tested positive for the coronavirus, prompting new tests of President Donald Trump and Vice President Michael Pence that provided negative uh, testing results, according to administration officials on Thursday. We were recently notified by the White House Medical Unit that a member of the United States military who works on the White House campus 
tested positive for coronavirus, said White House spokesperson Hogan Gidley. Gidley also said in his written statement that the president and the vice president have since tested negative for the virus and they remain in great health. The White House did not identify the infected person and did not say how close he or she may have gotten to the president and the vice president. CNN, which first reported the story, said the person is a member of the United States Navy who serves as one of President Donald Trump's personal valets. The network also said that Trump was upset when he was informed on Wednesday that the valet had tested positive, and he was subsequently tested again by the White House physicians. Uh, readers note, the previous story that I read regarding COVID-19 and the new cases in Story County was an update this morning on the Ames Tribune's website. The story that I'm going to read now was printed in the print edition of the Ames Tribune. It has additional information on it, but some of it is a little bit older than the story that I read online. Uh, this story is titled Reynolds Widens Openings as Story County's COVID Cases Hit 40. And as you know from the previous story, the, uh, the, uh, op the uh, infections in Story County now are in the 50 range. Um, Story County's 40th positive case of COVID-19 was reported by the Iowa Department of Public Health on Wednesday as Governor Kim Reynolds announced more business reopenings throughout the state. The governor's office announced plans to begin lifting restrictions for dental services, campgrounds, drive-in movie theaters, tanning facilities, and medical spas beginning on Friday after she ordered them shut down in March to slow the spread of the virus. State campgrounds, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, will open at 8 o'clock in the morning. While state parks have seen a great influx of visitors at our parks, it is expected to see the same at the campgrounds, the department said in a news release following the announcement. Park staff will be closely monitoring these areas to avoid gatherings of groups larger than 10. In addition, dentists may resume providing services if they comply with Iowa Dental Board guidelines for safely reopening, they have adequate personal protective equipment and they demonstrate a plan to preserve that equipment and have a supply chain to obtain more if needed. Pat Garrett, a spokesperson for Reynolds, said the decision to lift additional restrictions is based on how state officials have measured response to the initial openings. Garrett noted that the governor will make more decisions by May 15th. We are now kind of one week into her first round of reopening, and so based on what she has already seen, she wanted to take that next step, Garrett said. And she will continue to evaluate as we go into May 15th. Leah Wallaf, owner of Bronze 515 Airbrush Tanning Salon, which has locations in Ames and Urbandale, said... She feels ready to open on Friday, but she wasn't sure yet if she could under the new proclamation. Bronze 515 is considered a tanning salon, she said, but its spray-on process involves more human interaction than the use of a tanning bed. We're in the rooms with them, most like you're getting a facial. It just doesn't last long, Wallop said. Technicians don't touch customers directly, and only a few people are in the salon at a time. Employees have always worn gloves, Wallop said. Staff will wear masks and clean more often when they reopen. 
You're not sitting for two hours. You're not really touching anything besides door handles to get in and out. You stand there while we tan you, so there is limited contact, she said. The announcement follows last week's order, which allowed some retail businesses, including restaurants, to reopen at 50% capacity in 77 of Iowa's 99 counties, including Story and Boone counties. Reynolds' new proclamation will begin allowing some businesses in the remaining 22 counties, where COVID-19 infection rates have been higher, to reopen on Friday. Schools remain closed, as do businesses such as hair salons and barbershops. Restaurants and other businesses in 77 counties, including Story and Boone, have reopened with limitations. While the current carry-out and delivery-only rules apply in the other 22 counties. Also on Wednesday, the State Health Department reported Story County's 40th confirmed COVID-19 case. It said the patient is between the ages of 41 and 60. Again, that number increased on Thursday, and this is a reader's note, to around 50. Steve Sullivan, a spokesperson for Mary Greeley Medical Center, confirmed the additional cases, but could not immediately say where the individual was tested or their current status. Sullivan added there are currently three patients being treated for the novel coronavirus at Mary Greeley, but due to the facility consistently getting referrals from other counties, he could not confirm whether they were Story County residents. The State Health Department also announced 293 newly confirmed COVID-19 cases in Iowa on Wednesday, along with 12 more deaths statewide. Since Iowa's first confirmed case of COVID-19 on March 8, 10,404 Iowans have tested positive for COVID-19, 4,000 Iowans had recovered from the disease, and 219 have died. Throughout the state, 63,000 people have been tested for the coronavirus. As of Wednesday, 943 Story County residents have been tested, and among the 40 positive cases, which is now, of course, 50, 28 patients had fully recovered and one had died, according to the health department. Reynolds was in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday to meet with President Trump and update him about Iowa's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Pedetti accompanied Reynolds to Washington. Our next story on the front page, with gatherings banned at Iowa State University, the university goes virtual for the class of 2020 spring commencement. This story written by Kylie Wellendorf, staff writer for the Tribune. Nearly 6,000 Iowa State University students are expected to participate in a virtual commencement ceremony following the university's decision to cancel spring commencement due to the pandemic. It was really a hard decision for Iowa State to cancel the commencement ceremony, said Jennifer Shuan, university registrar at Iowa State University. Despite not being able to meet in person for commencement this weekend, Every graduating student requested CY Liberation gifts from the registrar's office, 5,523 in total. The gifts include totems of the traditional commencement ceremony, a diploma cover, a postcard message from Iowa State University President Wendy Winterstein, an insert with a gift from the Alumni Association, a souvenir tassel, and a streamer tube to be able to shoot off. The university will also mail students diplomas. 
the commencement program and for those who are eligible, honor chords. Emily Zarhonis, a senior, felt the, de the decision to cancel was made too early, noting at the time she didn't know a lot about the pandemic. Zarhonis said spring commencement was set to be a big event, big event for her and her family, as she is the oldest child and her father is an Iowa State University alumnus. I think I'm okay with it now, Zeroni said. I've really supported people in my life who take graduation photos, and the university sent over CY Liberation gifts, and it makes it feel more personal. Shuan said that in the virtual commencement, students will be able to watch a video showcasing a series of elements typically featured during the traditional ceremony, including an address by Winterstein, a performance of Cyclone Fantasia, as well as the National Anthem by Simon Estes. Recognition of students graduating with distinction, recognition of students who have served, are serving, or will serve in the military following graduation, the conferral of degrees. Each of the colleges has identified a student marshal, just like we do with every ceremony, Shuan said. We will share the student marshal's name, their hometown, and a headshot of that person. Each of the student marshals typically has a bio read about them, and that will be part of a separate video. The ceremony will wrap up with the singing of the bells of Iowa State, Shuan said. Additionally, the names of students graduating from the College of Veterinary Medicine and the Graduate College will be displayed in a larger video, she said. For our undergraduate students, because of the sheer number, we cannot put the names of all of those graduates within the video, she said. So we are creating a second separate video where the name readers are reading all of the names of the undergraduates. You can navigate within the video. And if you know you're graduating from the Ivy College of Business, you can go to that section and they will be in alphabetical order by last name. Beginning Saturday, students can visit the central website at www.graduation.iowa or excuse me, dot IA state dot edu slash. This is where they can view the videos with their family during a time that works for them, she said. We had talked about doing a live stream, but knowing we have students literally all over the world, we knew that any time we did it just wouldn't work for everyone, Shuan said. That's why we wanted to go with the pre-recorded experience. Plus, we didn't want to run into any live stream issues and they can't experience it, or it doesn't work for their family for whatever reason. We wanted it to be something they could do at a time that works for them. While the school's various colleges will not be able to hold receptions, Shuan said, each college will hold a unique graduation celebration, which will later be posted on the central website for Iowa State University's graduation. The option of meeting again in the fall for an in-person ceremony is not off the table, for the Iowa State class of 2020, she said. We certainly don't know how many students will be participating in the virtual ceremony, but we sure hope a lot, Shuan said. Everybody who is graduating in the spring is absolutely welcome to come to future ceremonies. Only time is going to tell how many of them want to participate. But if we could have enough participation in terms of the spring class who want to come to the fall ceremony, we would probably hold a separate ceremony for all of those spring students if there were enough 
who wanted to participate. Otherwise, we would just fold them into the regular ceremony. Vincent Valerno, a Iowa State University senior studying in marketing, plans to tune in this weekend with his sister, maybe during breakfast, he said. I know that a lot of people are going to be comparing online commencement with what it would be like in person, and my thought is that it's a pretty unfair comparison, Valerno said. Given the circumstances of everything going on, I know President Winterstein and her team are doing their best to make sure we feel cared for. So maybe some people will have gripes about the online ceremony, but for what it's worth, I think it's worth celebrating in its own way and not comparing it to what it would have been in person. And our next story inside the Tribune, Miami coronavirus death being investigated as a murder. This story written by David Ovalle. He writes for the Miami Herald. Nearly 400 people in Miami-Dade County have died of complications of the novel coronavirus over the last few months. Now, one of those deaths is being investigated as a murder. The unusual case involves a luckless man named Johnny Copeland, who is 44 years old, or was 44. He died late last month of COVID-19 with contributing problems of pneumonia, obesity, and hypertension. But with all that, the Miami Dad, excuse me, Miami-Dade Medical Examiner's Office ruled the chief cause of death was from complications of a gunshot wound that left Copeland paralyzed in 1997. With his death ruled a homicide, Miami detectives must try and track down who was to blame in a shooting that happened 23 years ago. Copeland's life was marked by bad breaks. He was also a victim in ongoing criminal court cases, or a case. His wife, Miami-Dade police said, abandoned him in an empty house, and he was discovered dehydrated and disoriented and covered in feces and urine. And when the global pandemic broke out, Copeland was living at a North Dade Nursing and Rehabilitation Center, a facility that wound up getting hard hit by the virus, with 36 residents testing positive, and at least three residents there have died. Copeland's sister, Robin Jones, said she is frustrated the nursing home didn't do enough to prevent the spread of the virus. Copeland, complaining of having trouble breathing, was transferred to Jackson North Medical Center. He sounded upbeat, but his condition worsened quickly. He died on April 29th. He wasn't scared of anything. He wasn't scared of death, Jones said. He already been through the worst of everything. Copeland's death continued a series of heartbreaks for his family. Another of Jones' brothers also died last month of colon cancer. Like her brother, Jones was also the victim of a crime. She was stabbed 15 times by the father of her children. She barely survived and had to learn to walk again. Though the families threw the family's ups and downs, Copeland was a steadying presence. Despite his disability, he was shot in the summer of 1997 at the age of 20. Relatives say they know few deaths or details about the circumstances of the shooting, but they do not believe anyone was arrested. Miami-Dade detectives say they are researching the case to determine the exact date and whether it had even happened within the city limits. We are pulling the file, said Miami police spokesperson Kenya Fallon. Copeland spent more than a month in a coma and rang in his 21st birthday in the hospital. 
I remember singing happy birthday to him by his bedside, Jones said. He struggled to accept his paralysis at first, but over the years, while surviving on government disability funds, he became self-reliant. With full use of his arms, he could get out of bed and cook for himself. His favorite dish was spaghetti with sausage. Copeland even helped care for his sister's children when she was recovering from the 2009 butcher knife attack by her former boyfriend, Derek Davis. He made the news after he was convicted at trial, then accidentally released by the jail one day later. But Copeland's health, mental and physical, began to deteriorate over the years. He married Jekaia Joanne Brown in August 2015, record show, but the relationship became rocky quickly, and the two were living in her sister's former home in Princeton. It was September 2015. The home was up for sale and was supposed to be empty. The owner was checking on the property and found Copeland sprawled out on the ground, his wheelchair next to him. And here's one of your letters to the editor. This one is written by Roger C. Underwood. He lives in Ames. It's titled, Strong Leaders Make Us Stronger Than Ever. The COVID-19 crisis has impacted everyone in our country and the world. While we see the national and global impact in the nightly news in places far from here, we see it in our local Story County and Ames area up close and personal each and every day. Locally, I see our leaders acting with the level of calm and reassurance that we would hope to see from them. Ames Mayor John Halleya, Iowa State University President Wendy Winterstein, Mary Greeley Medical Center Chief Executive Brian Dieter, and the Story County Board of Supervisors Chairperson Linda Merkin, to name a few. Thanks to all of them, and many more unnamed, for their dedication and leadership to our community. Right now, many local businesses are closed or operating at a reduced capacity. Hats off to another Ames leader, Dan Colhane, Chief Executive of the Ames Chamber of Commerce. Dan and his team have worked diligently to support our local business community in a variety of ways, from electronic newsletters full of suggestions and programs, all focused on helping keep our retailers and businesses as informed and alive as possible. The Buy in Story County gift card program was a brilliant program that injected more than $100,000 into the local businesses in short order. We needed all of our retailers, restaurants, service providers to serve as they serve the needs of our community very well, or to survive as they serve the needs of our community very well. We hear a lot about the importance of leadership. Look up any list of effective leadership books and you will see uncountable title recommendations for the hottest must-read books. You don't need to buy those books. Simply look around and see the incredible example of steady, measured, and optimistic leadership we are witnessing from the Ames Chamber of Commerce, the City of Ames, Iowa State University, Mary Greeley Medical Center, and Story County. These entities, among others, are working overtime to manage the impact of this global health situation and keep our community, its people, our businesses, and our university strong. I share our leaders' optimism that we will come through this as strong as possible. We hear a lot about the new normal. I don't know what the new normal is or what it will be, but I do know that with strong leaders, 
I like our chances of coming out stronger than ever. And that letter was written by Roger C. Underwood of Ames. And here's Dennis the Menace for today. Dennis and his mom are walking into a fine china store. Looks like Smith Fine China. Uh, they meet the clerk standing there in a suit, and the clerk is standing in front of Dennis, looking down at him with a look on his face like, mm, I'm not sure you should come in here. And Dennis says, Don't worry, I've broken a lot better stuff than this. And here's a coronavirus briefing. President Donald Trump signed a proclamation marking National Nurses Day, lauding nurses for their valiant sacrifices. Several nurses attended the event in the Oval Office. America's nurses are waging a war against an invisible enemy. They're fighting on the front lines of the battle, risking their health to save the lives of fellow citizens, Trump said. More than 1.2 million cases of the coronavirus are confirmed in the United States, with a, <clears throat> excuse me, with a death toll of 71,000 worldwide. The virus has killed over 258,000 people and infected more than 3.6 million. Two-thirds of COVID-19 hospitalizations in New York involve people who reportedly sheltered at home as opposed to essential workers, Governor Andrew Cuomo said on Wednesday. Another 18% were from nursing homes, Cuomo said. Almost three-quarters of the patients were 51 or older, and most were minorities. New York City has taken an unprecedented step of shutting down the subway overnight to disinfect it, but the impact that it has had is now in question. We thought maybe they were taking public transportation, and we've taken special precautions, Cuomo said, but no, these people were literally at home. More than a dozen nations haven't reported a single infection since the virus was discovered in December. The World Health Organization confirmed uh, to USA Today. Most of them are isolated, Pacific Islands, where closed borders could have kept them protected. That does not explain North Korea, Turkmenistan, and Lesotho, all of which share borders with countries with confirmed cases. Experts say they are likely withholding information or simply not testing. Two New England businessmen are the first in the nation to be charged with falsifying information to obtain forgivable loans guaranteed by the Small Business Administration, according to a U.S. Attorney's Office in Rhode Island. The men are accused of claiming they laid off dozens of workers at four businesses due to the pandemic. In reality, there were no employees working at any of the entities. Federal prosecutors said no money was released to the suspects. They are, the suspects are David Butziger, age 51, and David Stavely, age 52. A University of Pittsburgh professor who was on the verge of making a very significant finding about COVID-19 was killed in an apparent murder-suicide, according to authorities. Bing Lu, age 37, was found dead at home Saturday. Authorities say another person died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Bing was working on understanding the cellular mechanisms that underline SARS-CoV-2 infections and the cellular basis of the following complications. His colleague said, we will make an effort to complete what he started in an effort to pay homage 
to his scientific excellence. A New York uh, Democratic Party is going to be held June 23rd. New York must hold the Democratic primary on June 23rd, according to a federal judge in Manhattan who ruled so on late Tuesday. Judge Aniliasa Torres ruled that canceling it would be unconstitutional. The lawsuit was brought on behalf of former presidential candidates Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang. You are listening to the Ames Tribune on IRIS, your Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print handicapped. And your reader today is Dave Sauerman. And it is time now to turn to the obituaries. Alice Worth, 74, of Story City, died May 5th at Israel Family Hospice House in Ames after a short battle with cancer. Private Family Graveside Service will be held Friday, May 8th, at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church Cemetery in rural Gilbert. Alice was born in Ames on December 17, 1945, to Forrest and Esther Burley, grooms. She grew up in rural Colo with five sisters and one brother, where she attended and graduated from Colo schools. She married Harvey Jim Worth 49 years ago in Omaha, Nebraska, August 29, 1971. Alice and Jim settled down in Story City. They worked hard and built a great life and enjoyed traveling around the United States when they had the opportunity. They had two sons, Todd and Christine Worth, and Jason and Angela Worth, and three grandsons, Nellie, Eddie, and Tommy, and one granddaughter, Grace. Alice loved her family. One step in her living room will show you hundreds of family photos on display. She was always active in their lives, from the early days teaching the sons Sunday school and serving as a den mother in Cub Scouts, to watching her grandson's activities, grandchildren's activities. Alice began her career as a beautician, then subsequently received her finance degree and took a job at the city of Ames, where she worked for 25 years, crunching numbers for the accounting department. Alice was a proud Cyclone fan, even if both her boys went to school at the University of Iowa and became Hawkeyes. Alice got to know Story City pretty well. She could often be seen walking the perimeter of the town. She also volunteered at Grace United Methodist Church, where the family attended for over 40 years. She is survived by her husband, her sons, her grandkids, and four sisters. Joan Calhoun of Nevada, Barbara Klatt of Colo, Shirley Beggy of Florida, Karen Erickson of Nevada, she was preceded in death by her parents, her sister Donna Lee, and her brother Richard Grooms. Soderstrom Funeral Home is entrusted with arrangements. Martha Louise Kinnisley, age 91, of Frisco, Texas, and formerly of Ames, passed away on March 24th at Saddlebrook Care Center in Frisco, Texas. A private family funeral service will be held at the Adams Funeral Home. Burial will be in the Iowa State University Cemetery. Born on January 11, 1929, at St. Vincent's Hospital in Kansas City, Martha was the daughter of Arthur and Bertha Carter Lau. She graduated from Paseo High School and Kansas City, and later the University of Kansas. 
Martha was united in marriage to Richard Kinnisley uh, in Kansas City in 1950. The couple moved to Ames in 1951 for Richard to attend graduate school. Martha worked as a laboratory technician at the University Health Center until 1955 when her first child was born. Martha was active in St. John's by the campus Episcopal Church and a member of Beta Sigma Phi. She enjoyed sewing, crafts, and reading mysteries. Martha survived by her two sons, Richard Jr. of Fort Dodge and Mark Kinnisley of Frisco, Texas. Grandsons James Kinnisley, Fort Dodge, Matthew Kinnisley, and Michael Kinnisley of Frisco, Texas. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, Richard Sr. Funeral arrangements are under the direction of the Adams Funeral Home, and online condolences may be left for Martha's family at www.adamssoderstrom.com. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the family or St. John's by the Campus Episcopal Church and may be mailed to Adams Funeral Home, P.O. Box 745, Ames, Iowa, 50010. Our next story, the Department of Justice is dropping its case against former Trump advisor Michael Flynn, who pled guilty to lying about Russia's Russian contacts. This story is written by Kevin Johnson. The Justice Department is dropping its case against President Donald Trump's former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, in the midst of a review into the former Army General's prosecution. The decision, sure to ignite fresh speculation about Attorney General William Barr's close relationship with the White House, comes just more than a week after Trump claimed that newly released FBI notes exonerate Flynn even though he pled guilty to charges of lying about contacts with a Russian ambassador. Before Thursday's decision, Flynn had sought to withdraw his guilty plea when he admitted to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak before Trump's inauguration. They tormented him. Dirty cops tormented General Flynn, Trump told reporters at the White House last week. In new court documents, federal prosecutors asserted the FBI's interview of then-National Security Advisor was unjustified. Federal prosecutors in new court documents claimed that the FBI's January 2017 interview of then-National Security Advisor was unjustified. The government is not persuaded that the January 2017 interview was conducted with a legitimate investigative basis and therefore does not believe Mr. Flynn's statements were material, even if untrue. The documents state, Moreover, we do not believe that the government can prove either the relevant false statements or their materiality beyond a reasonable doubt. Our next story, Is My Money Safe in a Bank During the COVID-19 Crisis? This story is written by Chanel Bessette. She writes for, I'm not sure, the USA Today, perhaps, I think. In times of economic unease, you may find yourself wondering whether your money is safe in your bank account, even if you still have a paycheck coming in during the times. Uh, even if you still have a paycheck coming in during the coronavirus situation, your financial future might seem uncertain, and you might be feeling the need to stock up on cash, in addition to toilet paper and canned goods. 
The good news is that your money is absolutely safe in a bank. There is no need to withdraw it for security reasons. Here's more about bank runs and why they shouldn't be a concern, thanks to the system that protects your deposits. A bank run happens when a large number of customers believe that their bank is going to run out of money, so they all decide to withdraw their cash. Bank runs can be dangerous, self-fulfilling prophecies, because these withdrawals may deplete a bank's cash reserves. Historically, bank runs were a problem during the Great Depression, and many people lost their savings due to bank failures. Not long after the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was formed to make sure no bank customer loses insured money due to bank runs or another institutional insolvency. Even with all of the economic unease caused by COVID-19, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, has not received any reports of bank runs, according to spokesperson Brian Sullivan. A bank account is typically the safest place for your cash, since each is FDIC insured up to $250 in the event of a bank run or other bank failure. If you happen to have more than $250,000 in cash, you can open multiple accounts and distribute the funds across each. Cash is usually physically safer in a bank account as well. For instance, there is no guarantee that funds kept in your home are safe from burglars or fires. And, depending on the bank account, you could be earning interest on your cash that you won't otherwise be earning if it stays under your mattress. So, should I withdraw my cash from my bank account? The answer can be summed up pretty easily. Only if you need it. If you need money, go get your money, Sullivan says. If you don't, then why take it out of the bank? As we said before, your bank account, each individual account that you have, is insured up to $250,000 by the FDIC, assuming you are in an FDIC-insured bank. Banks are operating differently these days to reduce the spread of the virus, but that doesn't mean you're cut off from managing your money. Branch bank availability has been impacted by COVID-19, says Sullivan, referring to bank lobby closures across the United States, but that's due to an abundance of caution, and it has nothing to do with the health of the banking system itself. He points out that many bank drive through windows are still staffed, and ATMs are still accessible for depositing and withdrawing cash. Most bank services, such as paying bills, spending money, depositing checks, sending money, can be performed remotely via bank applications or websites. The future may feel precarious right now, but there are systems in place to keep the funds in your bank account protected and your money management running smoothly. And some news from around the nation, from Hoover, Alabama, River Chase Galleria, the state's largest mall, reopened for the first time in weeks on Tuesday, while demonstrators in the Capitol protested in favor of further accelerating the economy, even as cases of the coronavirus continue to rise. In Phoenix, Arizona, nearly half of nonprofits in the state will be unable to serve the public when the next month, because of the, within the next month, because of the heavy toll brought by the pandemic. Arizona State University survey cites losses in revenue and volunteering. 
and from Little Rock, Arkansas, prison staff who tested positive for the coronavirus have been allowed to work at a facility where at least 876 inmates have the virus, a correction official said in a court document filed on Tuesday. Arkansas Division of Correction Director Dexter Payne said the agency has allowed staff who have tested positive to work at the Cummins unit if they are asymptomatic. From Los Angeles, California, a plan to temporarily move homeless people into a Ritz-Carlton hotel has gotten pushback from residents of multi-million dollar apartments on the upper floors of the Los Angeles high-rise, according to a news report. City Councilman Mike Bonin said luxury hotels should not be exempt from Project Romkey, a statewide effort to shelter vulnerable people in empty hotel rooms during the pandemic. Uh, that is That project is called Project Romkey. From Fort Collins, Colorado, the Colorado Attorney General's Office issued a cease and desist letter to Functional Medicine Center of Fort Collins for false or misleading marketing of coronavirus antibody tests, reflecting elevated scrutiny of a testing approach currently under review by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. From Hartford, Connecticut, Governor Ted Lamont has canceled in-person classes at all of the state's K-12 through public schools for the rest of this school year amid the coronavirus pandemic. And from Dover, Delaware, some small businesses will be allowed to resume limited operations starting on Friday. Governor John Carney said, describing the change as a baby step toward a broader reopening of the economy while carefully monitoring COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. From Tallahassee, Florida, state officials are now contemplating what they should do if the coronavirus outbreak lingers into the hurricane season. Governor Ron DeSantis said on Tuesday, Florida Emergency Management Director Jared Moskowitz is working on potential changes to handling of evacuations and sheltering. From Atlanta, Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp warned Tuesday that a growing coronavirus outbreak is stressing resources in northeast Georgia, Gainesville, critical to the poultry industry, is quickly becoming one of the Georgia's most affected areas. From Honolulu, Hawaii, a streak of more than two weeks of single-digit daily new cases of coronavirus is allowing the state to take the next step in reopening its economy. Governor David Iggy said, Starting Thursday, businesses, including some malls, astronomical observatories, car washes, and pet groomers may reopen, Iggy said. And from Boise, Idaho, the state will give coronavirus economic relief grants up to $10,000 to small businesses. And no other state in the country is putting up more money in direct cash support for small businesses. From Boise, Idaho, the state will give coronavirus economic relief grants to up to $10,000 to small businesses and no other state in the country. And we've already read this one, so I apologize for that. In Illinois, Springfield, Governor J.B. Pritzker on Tuesday outlined a five-phase plan for reopening the state. In Indianapolis, Indiana, Hoosers should be wary of false or misleading claims from companies when they're making 
uh, about the ability to combat the spread of the coronavirus with disinfectants or cleaning services, according to state officials. In Des Moines, Iowa, Des Moines Public Schools have opened the door to do in-person graduation ceremonies after previously saying they would be held online to reduce the potential spread of novel coronavirus. From Mission, Kansas, Taiwan is donating 100,000 surgical masks to Kansas to help medical and meatpacking workers amid the outbreak. And from Frankfurt, Kentucky, a prison has been hit by hundreds of coronavirus cases, prompting action to separate inmates into housing units based on their health conditions. Testing of inmates and staff at the Green River Correctional Complex in Central City revealed more than 300 additional virus cases, Governor Andy Brashear said Tuesday. From Boston, Massachusetts, the Boston Pops Orchestra has released a musical tribute to healthcare workers, first responders, supermarket clerks, and other critical personnel on the front lines of the coronavirus. The performance of Summon the Heroes was composed by John Williams for the 1996 Olympic Games, and it includes an introduction from conductor Keith Lockhart, as well as Williams himself. The virtual performance includes 78 musicians playing from their living rooms, kitchens, basements, and bedrooms. And from Lansing, Michigan, the Republican-led legislature sued Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer on Wednesday, asking a judge to declare invalid and unenforceable her stay-at-home order and other measures issued to combat the coronavirus pandemic. From Lincoln, Nebraska, the state has opened a new lab to analyze the results of about 3,000 coronavirus tests per day and will launch more testing sites beyond those operating in Omaha and hard-hit Grand Island, according to officials. From Las Vegas, Nevada, MGM Resorts International has announced that the furloughs of more than 60,000 employees because of the pandemic could turn into layoffs. From Bismarck, North Dakota, backers of paid family leave will again push legislation to establish a program in the state, saying the COVID-19 pandemic has heightened awareness of the need for the change. In Columbus, Ohio, unhappy with State Director of Health Dr. Amy Acton, the Ohio House has moved to limit her power. Republican lawmakers introduced an amendment that would limit any stay-at-home order issued by the Ohio Department of Health to 14 days. And Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, the state is reopening businesses that were closed for or closed due to the coronavirus pandemic at the right time. United States Senator James Langford said on Tuesday, I don't think it's too soon. We've already got about 15 states in the same process, he said. In Odessa, West Texas, a bar owner and armed protesters were arrested after the bar reopened despite the governor's orders. Hector County Sheriff Mike Griffiths told the Odessa American that authorities on Monday apprehended Gabriel Ellison, owner of Big Daddy Zane's Bar. Six men with loaded AR-15 type weapons were also arrested for possessing firearms on a licensed property, Griffiths said. From Provo, Utah, dozens of workers tested positive for the coronavirus after two Utah County businesses instructed employees 
not to follow quarantine guidelines and require people who tested positive to continue reporting to work. Leaders said nearly half the employees at one business were infected, authorities said. From Montpelier, Vermont, the Vermont Department of Public Service is proposing a plan to provide broadband internet service to everyone in the state. Infrastructure that has proved even more essential during the COVID-19 crisis. Our next story, there's no other town like Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. The story is written by C.R. Ray Moore. Enjoy some scenery, peace, and quiet in Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. You're probably thinking, Rabbit Hash? That's the name of a town? Uh, There's a good explanation behind the name. The story goes that this little town on the Ohio River was originally named Carlton. The name became a bit of an issue because the mail continually was mixed up with that for nearby Carrollton, so the name was changed to Rabbit Hash. According to some residents, the name originated during the flood of 1847, when the rising waters began chasing rabbits to higher ground. The rabbits became food for the residents that were flooded in. Another version of the story states that during the Christmas time in 1847, residents watched buildings, lumber, trees, and their livestock and crops go down the river during another flood. They discussed what families would have for their holiday dinners, and that is when they turned to the large rabbit population and decided on rabbit hash. According to townspeople, due to several floods, many of the records for rabbit hash were destroyed, and with those records went much of the history of this unique little town. At one point, the rabbit hash general store was totally underwater, when floodwaters measured more than 79 feet in 1937. The store was fortunate to have remained at a time when other buildings were destroyed. The store has been in operation since 1831 and survived the flooding because it is anchored to the ground with iron rods. The store attracts a large number of visitors every year. It has antiques, bybee pottery, brooms made at Kentucky's Brea College, handmade soaps, kitchen utensils, snacks, handwoven towels, and their own beer. Another quirk of rabbit hash, the mayor is a dog. First elected mayor was Goofy, um, Borneman Calhoun. He died in office when he was 16 years old. The tradition lives on, with mayors like Junior Cochran, a black Labrador, Lucy Liu, a border collie, and Bryanth Paltrow, a pit bull terrier. The Sunday music behind the stove concerts have been postponed at this time, but are a popular event and something to watch for in the future months. Weekends and holidays can get busy in this town without a stoplight. Check rabbithash.com for a schedule of their events. Immerse yourself in the small town way of life by staying at the old Hacienda. The rustic inn is one of the historic buildings downtown. Visitors can sit on the porch with a cool drink kick back, and watch the riverboats pass by. There's only one 1,200-square-foot apartment available, complete with full kitchen and free Wi-Fi. So book early. 
especially if you're traveling to Rabbit Hash for an event. Call the general store at 859-586-7744. Or, I can't believe they have two phone numbers. Uh, they do, though. Uh, the other phone number to reach them at is 859-640-9301. There are plenty of things to do near Rabbit Hash. If you would like to add other stops to your adventure, visitors will find Big Bone Lick State Park in Union, where buffalo continue to roam, Red Wolf Sanctuary in Rising Sun, Indiana, just across the river, and the Rising Sun Casino in Indiana. And here's a column titled In Good Faith, and it's called Filling Bear Cupboards. It's written by the Reverend Tim Schnenick Moore. I read an article this week in a British church publication with a pretty damning headline. YouTube sermons will not feed the hungry, it said. The young vicar's point was that while churches are spending a lot of time figuring out how to live stream their services, that can't be all they're focused on. People are suffering during this time, and we have a moral obligation to meet their physical as well as their spiritual needs. She's right, of course, although her context is different from the suburban one in which I serve. She ministers to a small, impoverished, mostly elderly parish in London, many of whose members are unable or unwilling to watch online services. She reminded her readers that staying at home is wonderful when you have a home with electricity and food and a job and access to the internet and are computer literate, and that streaming worship, while important, assumes that everyone is in a safe and comfortable home setting, and therefore, the only need to be met is a spiritual one. Now, I argue that physical needs are spiritual needs, but one of the great needs to emerge out of this pandemic here on the South Shore and all over the world is the issue of food scarcity. People are going hungry. People who have never had to use food pantries before are lining up for groceries. Hoarding is driving up the prices of food staples, and the ones who can least afford the increases because of rampant unemployment are unduly suffering. Church leaders can't simply fiddle with the Wi-Fi while ignoring the increasingly loud cries for help. To address this in our own community, I spent time this week working with our outreach ministry, to turn our church into a community food drop-off center. We now have bins outside our doors where people can drop off groceries, and volunteers are lined up to make regular trips to three local pantries that we support. Wherever you live, there are people in your community, your neighbors, who are going hungry. Please do donate to your local food pantries, either by dropping off food, if you're able, or by making a financial donation. This is Holy Week, and I encourage your participation. Faith has always been lived out on a continuum between contemplation and action. We pray, but we also serve. We worship, but we also live out our faith in the world. I like to think of worship as a slingshot that propels us out into the world to do good. We need both sides of the spiritual coin now more than ever. And, of course... The streaming of online services and the feeding of the hungry cannot and should not be mutually exclusive. 
as we are invited to both love God and love neighbor, we can't help but be comforted even while offering comfort to others. Thank you if you're able for helping to ease the burden of those in our midst who are experiencing unprecedented hardship right now. That is ultimately what faith is all about. The Reverend Tim Schneck is an Episcopal priest at St. John's Church in Hingham, Massachusetts. This article is excerpt from his newly released book, Holy Grounds, The Surprising Connection Between Coffee and Faith, from Dancing Goats to Satan's Drink. Holy Grounds is available on Amazon. Um, you can follow him on Twitter, um, at Father Tim. And that's all we have time for today on IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. You've been listening to the Ames Tribune for this Thursday, May 7th. And your reader today has been Dave Sauerman. Thank you for listening to IRIS. <laughs>